Thank you for listening to the Ian Baker Leadership Podcast. My name is Ian Baker and I'm the owner and principal coach at Ian Baker Consultancy. At IBC, we serve leaders who want to execute their A game. And working with either one-to-one or one-to-many, we use our proven techniques to help deliver measurable results to those leaders and teams. The purpose of these podcasts to hopefully inspire and guide all those leaders or aspiring leaders and leaders that want to get further up the chain with that execution. And today I'm very fortunate to have an amazing leader with me to talk to. So all I ask is that you grab a drink, get comfortable and hope you find that this recording is very fun and informative. What I'd like to do is introduce Rezwan Hassan. Rez, perhaps you could just give me a brief introduction, a bit of background about who you are and what your role is currently. Yeah, sure. Hi, Ian. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, first of all, so it's a huge honour to be to be invited on. Yeah, I think I still get humbled every day that you call me a great leader. It's not what you used to call me when we used to work together. Um, <laughs> um, but um, look, you know, a big thank you to you. Um, so who, who am I? Um, this part of my story is really important, actually, and so, and I like to share it more and more now. Is I'm a son of a migrant who who came to the UK in the 1960s um, to make a better life for himself, and um, he came from Pakistan. So um, uh, I'm the youngest of three boys. Uh, I proudly call myself a British Pakistani. Uh, I'm proud of being British. I'm also proud of my heritage of being a Pakistani, uh, and I grew up uh, in Wales, um, born and bred there. I went to school there and then had the opportunity to kind of live away from home. I went to Liverpool University uh, and I studied chemistry. So I'm a a scientist by background. And from a very young age, my dad kind of instilled the importance of having an education because he wasn't afforded one himself. Um, So I had the privilege to go to university, came out of university, needed to get a job, like most of us did, had a lot of student debt on my head and uh, realized pretty quickly I didn't fancy working in a laboratory for the rest of my life. So I did what most people do when they don't know what to do is I kind of got into sales and I had the privilege of joining a company at the time called Gillette, famous for its razors. Um, And uh, I started as a sales representative. So I was kind of at the lowest level of the organization, carrying the bag, knocking on doors, trying to sell Oral-B toothbrushes to dentists, which is a brand that they owned at the time. And, uh, I quickly, quickly realized how tough that gig was and how demanding it was going to be. But I, I, I straight away realized that I had the ability to communicate well. And this job was going to teach me a lot about organization, being disciplined, building resilience. And very quickly, I could see what a career path could look like. Gillette got acquired by the consumer goods giant that is Procter & Gamble. Um, and I decided to joined Reki Benkiza, which is a um, healthcare and household cleaning company, which where me and you met, Ian. Um, and, uh, uh, and that's where I would say I grew up. I spent five years uh, in their business doing a variety of different sales roles, looking after different customers and um, looking after different categories as well. So learning very much around how businesses develop with, bigger, with some of our biggest retailers in the land. Um, and that's where I think I grew up in terms of learning the art of sales, learning commercial selling, 
learning functional technical skills that are going to be important for me to be a good commercial leader. Um, it's probably also where, as you could probably remember as well, where, where I, I grew hairs on my chest, uh, where, you know, I really matured, I would say, uh, as a business leader, because it was a tough environment, right? You, you remember the days where we would have to go in and present to the MD various kind of numbers and reports and presentations and you know, stuff that made your butterflies in your tummy, right? It made you really nervous and on your game, but a kind of exposure to senior leadership at a really early stage in your career really shaped me during those early years and built a resilience, built a, a broader perspective of the business. And so I was there for five years, you know, similar to you, did four different jobs in those five years that I was there. So, you know, I was young, free and single. Korea was a kind of meant the world to me at the time. And, uh, and, then, um, and, then, I, and then I joined Mars um, 14 years ago. So, which is, which is where I'm at now. And, uh, and again, I did a variety of sales roles in the Mars business, famous for its chocolate brands, uh, but also operates in, uh, in the pet care industry, as well as the food packaged goods industry as well. Um, and I worked on the confectionery side of the business, working my way through the organization. And then uh, up until kind of three years ago, I was the sales director for our UK confectionery business, which is one of our biggest businesses in the Mars Corporation. Had the honor and privilege to leave kind of 500 associates, run a business that was circa a billion in revenue, um, and had the opportunity to work with some of the biggest retailers in the UK and figure out how we grow the confectionery snacking business. Uh, and, and you know, I had a great time doing that job. And it was my first time being on a leadership team uh, in, that, in that role. So that was also a really big moment in my career, um, learning about not just being a functional leader and running a function, but also being part of a broader enterprise agenda uh, and how, how you get the value of the business by working together collectively and really driving value and performance for the business. And then I was very fortunate that, you know, a few people saw that some potential in me becoming a general manager and having spent kind of 19 years of my professional career in, uh, in the UK, uh, I thought it was a good opportunity to, to, to kind of step abroad. Um, and I've been running uh, our Iberian business, which is Spain and Portugal from a geographical standpoint. And I've been looking after our business across confectionery, pet care and food. And I've been doing that for the last three years based in Barcelona, which has been a fantastic experience personally as well as professionally. And it's kind of learned a lot. I'm sure we'll talk about it later around, you know, different cultures, um, different barriers that you would have. Um, and being an expat here that doesn't speak the local language has been a huge learning experience. So I've been doing that for the last three years and, and, and uh, my three years are due to be up next month. So it's been a fantastic experience. Learned a lot. Hopefully did a good job along the way as well. So that's me professionally. And on the personal standpoint, as you know, um, passionate about sport, a big anchor point, really, in a lot of my learnings through business. Um, you know, I think sport teaches you a lot. And, you know, and you know I love cricket and um, a big, passionate cricket player and a supporter and now an administrator as well. And if you're South Asian, cricket's in your DNA, right? So, so <laughs> that's, that's a big part of who I am. Um, and then obviously a huge Liverpool football club fan. So probably one of the reasons why I went to study university there. And I think we have one of the best leaders ever in Jurgen Klopp. Um, so, you know, I'm sure we can talk about him at a later point as well. So that's kind of my interest outside of work. I'm married to Nadia. 
who's been integral to shaping my leadership um, and, and shaping what my values are uh, over the last kind of you know, 15 odd years that I've known her. And I have two young kids, um, Maya, who's my daughter, who's seven, and Issa, who is my son, uh, and he's five. And yeah, they're constantly teaching me about leadership on a daily basis. So I'm, I'm sure you're, you're well aware of how the kids will stretch you as a human being, as a dad and as a leader every day, right? Yeah. So, uh, yes, yeah, so that's a little bit about me and hope that helps. No, that was, that was brilliant. There's, there's so many things that you brought up there where we could we could go and talk about. I suppose it's still a relatively hot topic. I'm recording this on the 22nd of March and it's only a couple of days after Liverpool fluked their way past Nottingham Forest in the in the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. You know, they, they were lucky that our finishing wasn't as good as theirs. So I won't bring that up again, Rez, and I won't hold it against you. But I do have a fond memory of making you wear a Forest shirt playing a five-a-side football tournament when we're at Reckitt. So, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so thank you for that introduction. What I'm going to start with, if you don't mind, is, is you mentioned how much of an influence uh, Nadia has been in the last sort of 14, 15 years in supporting you and developing, you know, helping you develop as a leader. What is it that specifically that your your family and Nadia has, has helped you with from a leadership point of view? Yeah, so the way I've been able to frame my leadership offer has been to really understand what my values are and where my values come from. And there's probably been two, two driving forces behind learning about my values. One has been my parents and the upbringing that they gave me, and then the other one being Nadia, effectively holding the mirror up against me uh, versus you know, describing who I think I want to be versus who I am really on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, as I shared with you, my, I was a son of a migrant. So my, my father came to the country in the 60s with next to nothing to his name. Um, and my mum ran our house and she taught me the concept of generosity and how generosity is not connected to wealth. Um, and I always had this kind of belief that you could only really be generous if you had plenty to give. And plenty to give meant monetary value. And what she taught us from a young age is actually you can be really generous with your time, your support, your love, um, your willingness to help, food, which was a big thing in our family. You can be generous with your food. It's a big, you know, big hospitable kind of culture within the South Asian culture. So I think the first value that I learned about my leadership was generosity and, and, and how that helps me to want to help people um, and, and, and how it doesn't have to be reciprocal. So, you know, you, you don't give to receive, right? So this, this is the concept of generosity. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, my dad worked in a factory pretty much most of his life. So he was a laborer and he came from an environment where he didn't have a lot. So what, what he did have was his, his integrity. So my dad was always a big advocate of, you know, if you commit to something, you, you, you see it through. If you, make a, if, you, if you make a promise to someone, you see it through. Um, and you operate as honest as you can. Therefore, you say what you think, and, and you and, and you know you don't you don't compromise that in any way. So, what therefore you know, the value that I've taken on board as a result of that is authenticity. I try to be who I am. I try not to. I try not to be something that I'm not. I equally 
you know, the downside of that can be I can be pretty direct. Um, you know, people will always know how uh, how I feel about things, and there's a positive to that because people will always know where they stand. But there also can be an edge to that, right? Which is something I need to be aware of. Sometimes, you know, people struggle with that frankness and the straightness, and and, that, and that's something I've I've struggled and continue to struggle with throughout my career. And how do I make people feel safe around me, right? So, authenticity is another value. Um, the the third value is is very much linked to. Uh, competing. So um, having played a lot of sports in my life and, and, you know, speaking really openly, having suffered a lot of casual racism early on in my kind of upbringing um, in the heart of South Wales, the way I used to gain respect was on a sports pitch. So I could be competing with someone that would have been casually racist to me during the week, week, but I won their respect on the sports pitch and I won it through being a good cricketer or being aggressive in the tackle in football, whatever it may be. But I, I kind of saw very early on that raising the stakes, competing was a was a way of me kind of getting that mutual respect from people that would, would cast a judgment on me on the way I looked or the way I appeared, right? So sport has played a big part in my life. I like to raise the stakes. I like to push myself as much as I can. And, and I know that for me becomes not about winning. So actually I get not a lot of satisfaction from winning. I get more satisfaction when I've left everything on the pitch. And again, from a leadership point of view, that has many positives because you know, I can constantly kind of push the ambition of what we can try to achieve. Um, the North Stars, we like to call it in sometimes in the corporate environment. So, so that's really good because you know, I can galvanize teams around that. The dark side of it can be sometimes maybe you're trying to push two people too fast too quickly right maybe people are not prepared to compete as heavily as you and and therefore creating fellowship sometimes is something i need to watch out for i don't leave people behind and so and then the last the bit on 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 my values is is kind of shared with this with you at the beginning of the story Be, being a british pakistani is something i'm really proud of and i now realize that i have a platform to try and make an impact on humanity which honestly, Ian, you know, if you asked me 19 years ago as a, as a kid coming out of South Wales, uh, is that the kind of language that I thought I'd be using, making an impact on humanity? Absolutely not. But, but I recognise I've got a really important platform. Uh, I represent a community. Um, and I want to try and make a difference, either by giving back or by role modelling that actually you can come from a South Asian background. You don't have to be a doctor, a dentist or a lawyer to be a success. You can operate in a business world. Uh, and you can and you can you know achieve you know a good career. So that's started to really shape my leadership, Ian, in terms of being generous, being authentic, always wanting to raise the stakes and trying to make an impact on humanity. And that is what I would describe as my leadership offer, and that is how I try to go about my business every day. A lot of that is shaped from my upbringing, in terms of what my parents taught me, and then a lot of that is having someone as close as Nadia who will hold me to account on that, on that, right? So part of that is living that in work and also out of work and, and making that just one virtual circle. And quite often she'll remind me, you know, you tell me these are your values, you tell me this is your purpose, uh, are you really living it? And, and having somebody close to you that you deeply trust um, to hold that mirror up to you is, is always a good sense to check along the way. Thank you for being so open and honest about 
you know that relationship with your family and and how they've they've really well and truly shaped your values and and generosity integrity authenticity such amazing elements and, and parts of of what clearly has made you the leader you are so that's the kind of the family side of things you know we've we we spent a number of years working together you talked about some we had some interesting times you know working together in the pressures of of, of work in terms of some of the the leaders within the business world that have influenced you what have they looked like and what how have they added to to this value proposition that you've got yeah i, I would say and you learn as much from the great leaders that you see as well as the bad leaders right so the people that don't make you feel great I, i've learned as much from them as i have from those that make you feel like you're ready to jump through brick walls through them for them right so um, I, I would say probably a couple of things stand out to me. You know, I, I've had I've had bosses in my career where I've really been scared of them. Yeah. So I've had days where I've had bad news and I've gone to pick up the phone to tell my boss the bad news and I thought twice about phoning them because, you know, I was intimidated by the reaction that I was going to get on the other side of it and knowing that was just going to be a horrible phone call. And that psychological safety is something I've learned about in my career that, of course, you can fear somebody into getting a job done. But for me, that's kind of really short-term uh, and not sustainable and, and not really getting to the heart of the issue. And what my learnings from that is being, is regardless of the outcomes that you're dealing with, um, keeping psychological safety for people to be at their best is really important. And I've learned that in business where I'm sure you can kind of picture who those individuals would be that would intimidate the hell out of you into driving an outcome uh, and gone, okay, I was quite resilient. I quite enjoyed that hustle and bustle. I quite having a bit of a dust up and, you know, I, and I can handle myself in those situations. But did I really enjoy them? Did it really bring the best out of me? Did I feel like I could be really honest and truthful and transparent and put the real conversation on the table? Probably not, right? So, so whilst I may have been able to navigate through those kind of choppy waters in those instances, it, it wasn't an enjoyable experience. So, you know, I would want that experience to not feel like that for the people who I work with or have worked with. And don't get me wrong, right? I've got it wrong myself plenty of times. But I, I always go back to, I don't want to feel that way and I don't want my people to feel that way. So psychological safety becomes really important. I've also seen it re work really well in a, in a sporting environment, right? So coach, coach a lot of people in cricket and football. And quite often I'll say to somebody who's opening the batting at cricket, and you know this sport as well as I do, you know, you're going to play for the next 10 games and you're going to open the batting. And I just want you to go after the ball and I want you to attack it. And when you can create that psychological safety for someone to play freely, you're much more likely to maximize their potential versus if you don't score runs in the next few games, you're going to get dropped. And that carrot and stick approach, I think uh, I've learned also in sport, right? That, that, that's really helpful. So that's the first lesson I would say is how do you create safety for people to be themselves and be at the best? 
that's that's the that's the that's been a big learning for me in my career. The, the second learning around leadership has been for me is one that I've always kept as a framework close to my heart, which is the four needs of followers, right? Um, so as a leader, what you're trying to create is followership. Followership in a direction, followership in an idea or an agenda that you're looking to drive. And, you know, I, I capture them as kind of four key words, trust, stability, compassion, and hope. So, and typically, when you're struggling to create followership, it's because one of those things is not working in your favor, right? So you might be going into a volatile environment and therefore, you know, it's not stable. And you will not create followership unless you stabilize the situation. So as a leader, you have to really focus on stability, giving people clarity of what's needed, clarity of what the next few steps needs to look like, clarity of what you expect from them. People sometimes will look for that stability. If you have stability in place, you know, people might be feeling a little bit wounded because they've gone through a lot or the road ahead is really challenging. Yeah, and you need to show some compassion. Um, and that's really important. There are other times where people will be looking to say, well, that's fine, I feel stable and, you know, I've got your, I've got your empathy, but do I really trust you? And you've got you to work at building that trust, following through on what you're going to say, you know, sticking to your commitments, um, prom you know, sticking to your promise is another way of making sure you build that kind of trust. And then at some point, people want to know, What's the vision? What's the hope? Where are we going to? Why is that future looking so great? And, and, and being able to articulate why there should be hope and why we should be looking to go forward is another important facet. So creating fellowship for me, I've always tried to anchor around those four components. And whenever I'm trying to diagnose where we are on a certain situation, um, a certain year or a certain topic, you know, I try to understand where are we on those four needs of the followers and what specific area that we need to work on. And then I would say kind of the final thing that I've learned about great leadership is we're living in an incredibly volatile world, right? So situations are changing day by day. What you felt was, you know, your foundations are being dramatically rocked on a month-by-month -month basis, whether that be geopolitical, whether that be you know, inflationary pressures that are happening, whether that be kind of, you know, social issues that are going on. I think the environment that we've been living in in the last three to five years has been incredibly volatile. And my own learnings is that as a leader has been a couple of things. One is be prepared to change your mind. Don't be proud. So a decision that you've made today based on data and insights you had today can quite easily become redundant tomorrow. And what, what you want to do is make sure you're willing to change your mind if new data comes forward. Now, you need to balance that because you can't be changing your mind every day because people start lack to, will start to see a lack of credibility in your leadership. That's, that's the first thing, right? Be willing to change your mind. The, se the second thing is empathy and compassion is critical because as a human race, we're being impacted on so many dimensions that understanding the mental state and the mental well-being of the people that you're with and you're working with is more important now than ever before. Um, so, you know, often the question I ask myself is, what's the energy and the mental state of my team? 
when I'm coming into the office? You know, what place are they going to be in based on what they've had to deal with both personally and professionally? And then, and then finally, I would say, have to be obsessed with the future. So focusing on the here and now as a leader uh, is, is not, is not, is, is, I don't see that as my job. And that means I have to draw the line and, and make sure my team feel accountable for the short term. But where I can add value and make a difference is on the long term. And in my job, that's kind of nine to 36 months out, right? So I have to be obsessed with the things that are going to make a difference in that time frame, not the things that are going to make a difference in the short time frame. Because if I start to come into the short term, one, I'm not good at it, right? Two, there's better people skilled at doing that than me and making the right decisions. And three, no one's looking at the long term. And therefore, at some point, we're going to hit roadblock. So I try to ensure I don't get caught up in day-to-day issues. And I try to keep myself focused on the long term. And, you know, if I use an analogy, one that we use a lot here in Mars, actually, it's been called being up the jungle, up the tree, up the tree in the jungle. So you imagine you're a team that's been dropped into a jungle and and you need to chop your way through the jungle to get out to the other side where, you know, a beautiful island awaits with lots of sunshine and, and great beaches. One of you has to be up the tree, navigating which way through the jungle that you'll want to go. And then there needs to be a team downstairs chopping through the jungle, getting you to where you need to go. Your team will do a lot of things to try and get you down the tree. Boss, I don't know how to chop in this direction. Come down and help me. Boss, can you figure out whether we're going in the right direction. And the moment you come down the tree is the moment where the whole team becomes lost on where you're actually supposed to get to. So it's really important that the leader the leader stays at the top of the tree and keeps its focus on, this is my role, ensuring we are heading in the right direction. And let the people who are really good at chopping to continue chopping despite what they may see. So I use that example a lot as a way to articulate, you know, how we divide and conquer and how do we organize ourselves as a team. But, you know, going back to the original point, Ian, is... I try to make sure that I'm really focused on in on the long-term issues that are going to impact the business, our agenda, and tackling them ahead of time. That analogy is is absolutely fantastic. And hopefully those people that are listening to this can really take that away and visualize the fact that to be up the tree, guiding the people below you to the direction that not only you want, but they need to get to as well for themselves and and for you and for the business and the bit that really struck me there was the fact that they will be constantly trying to pull you down the tree in order to get you to to do the chopping and I really like that so that hopefully if if anybody writes anything down or takes anything away that's a really great great little message so thank you for that there's some interesting points in there and and one of them was was relating to for me the the bit around the psychological safety now it's obvious that you have learned through bitter experience and and through the last 14 15 years of of being in mars which as everybody knows is a, a global organization which will clearly look after its people well and wants to retain the best people so it probably affords you a number of the tools to be able to to do that well. 
if you're running a very small business that's that's quite high pressured and there's a lot of you know angst and pulling and and, and smaller teams are there any you talked about the four the four tips of the fellowship you know fellowship but is there anything really about the psychological safety that a leader who really is you know in the thick of it what strategies would you ad- advise them to take away so that they can make sure that that team remains safe because i i think that's a really important thing with leaders and i see it a lot in leadership where the the pressures of the day job just get reflected and and dropped down into the teams and then everybody starts feeling pressured everyone starts getting a little bit angsty and i'm just interested to to know how somebody who's just coming into the leadership role and isn't as experienced as you what what thing could they do very early on that allows them to to create that safety question so i think i think what i what, what i've learned and maybe it's not the best example right but i i've always assumed my role to absorb pressure so absorb of it as much as i possibly can hold attention and kind of exhume calm right so i tried to do that at home and i tried to do that at work and why do i do that because I've really, really learned that once that pressure starts to leak from me to the people that I care about, my team, my family, I think it starts to drive a lack of clarity and sometimes the wrong decisions, short-term decisions to alleviate the pressure. Yeah. So let's use a business example we have to hit monthly targets that ultimately contribute to an annual target that we're all tasked with. I'm sure everybody has who's listening will, will can, can relate to that. You've all got targets of some sort of some sort of measures that you you have to deliver for your boss. And you know, I've always taken the philosophical view of uh, I will take the pressure that comes from missing short-term delivery on the proviso that we deliver the long-term plan, right? So whether that be an annual plan. I make sure that I absorb the pressure that comes from that and don't let it leak to the team. And then equally hold the team accountable to, at some point, we need to get a short term right and into action. So I would say absorbing pressure, exhibiting calm is a, is a really important part of creating safety. The second thing I would say is continuing to check in on the capability of the team. Okay. First of all, we all go out to really hire great people. And by the way, you know, I've not mentioned it yet, but it's probably where I spend 90% of my time thinking about the team, the capability of it, the skills that they need, the culture that they're creating, um, the chemistry that we have in the, in, in the, in the team. Uh, how do we continue to improve that? So um, that is 90% of my job on a, on, a, on, a, on a daily basis, making sure that's right. So, so when I say making sure that the right capability in the team, of course, you'll bring the talent in and you get the right team around you, but the capability needs may change from month to month to quarter to quarter to year to year based on what you guys are looking to do as a team. And that, that capability can be addressed by me, by, by good coaching one-on-one, um, but that also may be capability that I need to bring in externally for people to help us to upskill us on new skills that we need to, to transform our business. An example being, you know, 
how do we digitalize ourselves to be really relevant online in the categories that we operate in? You know, we need some expertise coming in to, to, to help us understand how to become much more future focused with our shoppers. So building capability in your team allows them to then figure out how to do their jobs really well. And when they start to know that they can do their jobs really well, you start to build confidence and therefore safety in their capability. That's another way of doing it. So that, that's, a, that's always a big focus of mine. Um, and then that, that will also lead to my management style with them, right? So if there's a capability that I can teach someone, I'll get quite directive and I'll be really clear on what someone needs to know and apply situational leadership at that point, right? Which is, um, okay, you don't know how to do A, B, and C. My role now needs to be to roll my sleeves up a little bit um, and be a little bit more directive with you on what needs to happen and when it needs to happen. Have regular check-ins with you. Uh, make sure we're progressing in the long right way and, and, and showing you a little bit of how it's done, where eventually you understand it and you and you start to run with it. Well, there's, there'll be other elements where that style, that directive style, can actually have the opposite impact on someone. You could blow their confidence because actually they know how to do it. And what they need is emotional support or they just need to, a direction to go in or they just need confidence that what they're going after is the right thing. Um, so adapting your style between empowering and directing is, is, a really, is a really important facet that I have in making sure and building capability, but also coaching as well as creating that safety. Thirdly, I think, you know, I try to create an environment where either through my own questioning style or role modeling myself vulnerability right so trying to understand what people are feeling vulnerable about where their concerns are and reassuring them that that's okay it's okay right that you're feeling vulnerable about a b and c you're feeling worried or scared about a risk that we're going to take you're feeling concerned about the impact on the business that it could have so really trying to understand through curiosity and through empathy whether people are vulnerable and are feeling vulnerable and the best way to role model that is to show vulnerability yourself. So I'm, I'm quite comfortable as a leader when I'm asked to make a decision to say, actually, I don't know how to make this decision and bringing the team in sometimes to, to really think about how we make that decision together. So, um, so that would be the other kind of tools that, that I would use to try and create safety uh, in a team environment. Thank you, Raz. There's a lot of themes that, that keep, reoccurring in in this and you know when we the, the one thing that strikes me and I, I'm just trying to put myself in the position of, of some of the people that might be listening to this uh, depending on what their business is and, and who they're working for or maybe they're they're in a, a role that where their next step is into leadership and and management is that the some of the biggest excuses I get back from from leaders and managers is that yeah this is all wonderfully and you know we should be demonstrating empathy we should be doing capability checks and you know we should be exercising all these different behaviors but I just don't have the time it's all well and good you know I, I love I want to be a leader I want to be a great leader but I just don't have the time to be a great leader and I'd be interested to, to to understand from you how you what is it from a time management point of view that allows you to get all this done because I think in some respects the people that are listening will probably go 
yeah but he works for mars you know they they've, they've probably got loads of time to do all these these nice things but i'm running a, a million pound business or a two million pound business i just don't have the time how can i should i do in order to to create the time or the 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 energy to do this do you have any thoughts on that Raz? yeah so so i i passionately believe that that is not an excuse not having the time right so you that cannot be used as an excuse and i i i test everybody around me on this on a regular basis so the first thing is regardless of whether you run a a billion pound business, a 200 million pound business or a million pound business, you know, leading, leading people uh, is critical to the success of your business, right? So having, so what, what does that mean? Number one, having a great team around you. So that means you go out, you select great talent, you bring talent in that you think is capable, that could drive your business forward. You develop talent, so you make sure that you continue to developing them, making them better every day, helping them reach their potential. So they ultimately drive performance with you in the business. And then thirdly, also manage performance, right? Because you'll have situations in your business where maybe the person is not right. Maybe the performance or the capability showing is not right. And letting that play out and fester in your business just creates a negative impact. So creating the right team is critical, and I see those three things I've just described to you as, as kind of a big focus of my time to make sure that that's working, that's working well. The, the second thing then, once you're developing the talent and selecting the right talent, then how do you engage that talent, right? So how do you get them motivated to want to run through brick walls for you? How do you get them performing at really high levels? And you know, there, there's a process that we follow here at Mars that kind of guides us through on that. One is that we want to really be clear on what is our purpose of being together. So why, why do we come together as a group of individuals and work together? What's the inspired purpose that we have that gets us behind getting out of bed every morning, coming into work and wanting to give 110%? What is it? What's the collective inspired purpose? And that's the why, right? So, you know, we want to spend some time in, I would really encourage all of you to spend some time with your teams around, around really being clear on what your inspired purpose is. The second thing about that then is, what does that mean, right? What's the intent then you want to drive in the respective businesses and the organizations you want to go after? So what's the outcomes that you want? Uh, what's the performance you want to drive? What's kind of the ambitions that you want to achieve? And you've got to get, you've got to get really clear on, 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 on that be clear on what your measures of success are going to be. It's going to be linked to your purpose, but also going to be linked to the outcomes that you want for your business. And once you've done that, then, then you've got to figure out, right, what are the work streams? What are the tasks? What are the, what are the kind of projects that we've got to be owning as a team and that we've got to be driving collectively? Um, so you know what your kind of deliverables are going to be. The things are going to make a difference to you guys. And then how are you going to resource it? Who's going to do what and when and how? And, and what's the chemistry in your team that's going to make sure you've got the best people working on the right things? And, you know, is, is, is Rez suited to working on this project because he's got a certain personality trait that will really help us there? Is Ian work better working on a certain project because he's got a skill set that will really help us be advan advantageous in that space? 
So what, how do you make sure you divide and conquer your resources in a way that ensures you've got the best people working on the right projects? And when you've done that, you shouldn't have lots of time left because that's what takes up leadership time is constantly watching that circle play out, right? Are we living our purpose? Uh, are we delivering our long-term objectives? Are we really collaborating well together? Yeah, and, and I, have I got the right chemistry in my team? And if you're doing a really good job of that, right, that should be taking 60, 70% of your capacity as a leader. And if you're not doing that, I can promise you your team's not operating at its best. And if in return what you're doing instead is getting involved in the business and the day-to-day -day running of it and getting involved in tactical tasks that need to be done, then why have you hired a team? And why have you got individuals that you brought in to do the job for you? That's what they're responsible for. That's what they're accountable for. And your job is to make sure that that's, that's what's playing out. So I never subscribe to, I don't have time for this leadership because that is the priority for me. So I, I prioritize the leadership aspect of my role over and above the day-to-day -day delivery. And I know if I get that right, the rest follows. And it's a virtual circle. You've got to get that wheel spinning. And once it's spinning in your direction, it's hard to stop. It's a bit like momentum. Momentum in business and momentum in sport once you have it, it's really hard to stop. Huh? It's hard to get it. But when you get it, it's hard to stop. And so I'll, I would challenge everybody who would say to us, oh, I don't have time for that. It's just because you're not prioritizing it. You're not making it important enough. And that needs a mindset shift. I think if we go back to the, almost the, the analogy of the tree in the jungle a little bit, and, and that's, that's that, that time argument that, that we hear so often is that, if you spent less time climbing up and down the tree and picking the right equipment for whatever it is that they need to, to chop the jungle down for, if you've got people at the front of that queue cutting down jungle and they're, they've selected the wrong tools for themselves, then they could be at blame or it's up to the leader to give them the right tools in the first place. But I think from what you're saying is so much of the time is, is wasted going up and down the tree all the time versus staying at the top of the tree, making sure that it's they're going in the right direction and then periodically checking in and making sure that they are well equipped, that they're well motivated and that their their capabilities are, are such that they can continue to to deliver that that image that you've got of the the island at the end of the, the chopping process. So that thank you because I for me, I think that's all the behaviours and everything, I think, are, are absolutely critical. And I think what I'd like to do is sort of, in some respects, come back to the and try and summarise what you would say are the maybe the top five or six key attributes slash behaviours that leaders need to develop and work upon. Because I guess nobody falls into the leadership role fully formed. You know, everybody has to start somewhere and if they were to prioritize the behaviors that they work on as well as the the tasks that they need to work on as a leader it'd be useful for me and hopefully the people listening is that we can almost give them a checklist of saying like these are the sort of behaviors that I think you need to start learning and and, and demonstrating and these are the maybe the the tasks and the, the things that you should prioritize as a leader in order for you to become the best version of yourself. Is that something that perhaps we can do? 
in the last yeah sure yeah yeah sure so let me caveat by saying no way do i profess i'm having the right answers on this right this is just stuff that i try to use in my career i've just fumbled upon really and also some some excellent excellent schooling from mars right so so first thing which we talked a lot about today is how do you create a culture where people feel safe so what behaviors are you driving as a leader to ensure people can be really open, transparent, and, and, and feel safe? And why is that important? Because once, once someone feels safe, they will be ambitious. And when someone's ambitious, they'll be pushing, they'll be pushing themselves as far as they can possibly go. And at some point, they'll be feeling uncomfortable that if that choice doesn't go in their direction, they want somebody there behind them to back them up. And, and it's important, right? So if you want to be bold, drive risk-taking, drive decisive decisions, then you need to have an environment of safety to do that. So that means being aware of it, trying to seek out where people don't feel safe, trying to understand what people's vulnerabilities are, uh, and being really curious in your questioning style. That's the first thing I, I would say, right, is I think all great leaders have this great ability to create safety. The second thing that I've observed is great leaders are great coaches. And great coaches, as painful as it may be, never give you the answers. They let you figure it out yourselves. And we work in a fast-paced environment. The world is operating at a faster speed on a daily basis. Things are getting made, decisions are getting made quicker and quicker every day. And therefore, we're, we have a sense of urgency and a sense of pace behind us. But if, that, if, if what that does is revert us to shortcutting to the answer and being directive in our leadership styles and telling people what to do, we don't build capability long-term. We don't create an empowerment culture in the organization. And frankly, it probably at some point becomes meaningless of why you're bringing great talent in. So um, resisting to give the answer, continuing to stay curious, allowing the team to make some mistakes, get to the conclusions themselves, is critical in terms of building long-term capability. So that's a really important behavioral trait that I would say is important. Thirdly is reward and recognition, right? We can be quite critical of ourselves as human beings, right? Whenever we hear feedback, feedback can be positive and negative, we tend to forget the positive stuff and focus in on the negative stuff because it's just human nature, right? What can I do better? It's really important that when you get those small wins that are either the behavioral shifts that you're looking for um, or the business outcomes that you want, you quickly reward and recognize your team because it starts to build trust, it starts to bring, build stability, uh, it starts to give people hope that you're heading in the right direction. So really rewarding and recognizing the behavior versus the outcomes is something I'm really focusing on, right? So sometimes you may not get the outcome that you want, but you're rewarding the behaviors that come with it. So I would say reward and recognition are really important, Ian. And then um, I would say frame it as crucial conversations. So maybe we can link this back to one of the values that I have, which is being authentic and having integrity, is you want to create an environment where you can confront the reality, okay? So... If there is an issue with the business that you're operating with and you can all see it, have the crucial conversation and confront the reality. If you see an issue with an individual and their performance and their behavior, 
confront the reality and have the conversation. Letting these things fester, avoiding them at the risk of not wanting to have conflict creates long-term pain and much long-lasting impact on people and the business. So those crucial conversations, confronting reality, either on business agendas or individual agendas on people is, 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 uh, is a behavioral trait that I would say is really important. So they, they would kind of be the, the behavior shifts. The second part of your question, remind me again. Well, let's, let's just, for the, for the purpose of those that are listening, I'm just going to go through those that I've, I've made a note of. Which yeah, sure. I think are fantastic. So knowledge or caveat res in terms of, you know, this is your, <laughs> your viewpoint, but the way you've articulated your position in this podcast is, is amazing. So making your team feel safe, being a good coach, i.e. non-directive but I think I'm just going to add my little bit onto that is that leaders are also coachable sometimes in terms of learning from the people that that are around them that may have skills to bring to bear you talked about curiosity I think that's a, another key behavior is, is Edison failed 10,000 times and he failed 10,000 times because he was he was inherently curious reward and recognition I think as Brits we are we are often quite shy in terms of both providing recognition to people and also receiving positive recognition for something. It's like, oh no, stop it. Um, but I think that's a really important thing. Even if people don't like to receive it, they probably do. And then, you know, confronting reality and having those crucial crucial conversations, 100 percent agree with you there. If you're not prepared to to have those difficult conversations sometimes, then you're making a rod for your own back. So amazing. Thank you for the behaviors. So the other the other side of that is is prioritizing functional things. So you talked earlier about being aware of the capabilities of the team and using situational leadership as a way of testing capabilities and making sure that people are on track. What are the kind of the as a leader, if you're writing your to-do list tomorrow, what's at the top of your to-do list when, as a leader uh, on, a, on a weekly and, and monthly basis? Yeah, so look, it sounds really obvious, right? But the, the one thing that the leader will uniquely own in a business or any institution is the strategy, right? So what is the strategy? The strategy will be your compass. Where do you want to go? How are you going to get there? And what do you need to do to get there? And what will success look like? You know, I, I continue to be surprised that sometimes the lack of clarity a leader or a leadership team may have on what their strategy is and therefore what the priorities are for the business, function, team, whatever it may be, right? So, and, and clarity at a granular level. So what does it mean for me as a head of a function? What does it mean for me at an operational level, right? And uh, so I would say having a strategy and having a strategy that is clearly can be executed with clear metrics that will show you success is really important. And that's a really easy statement to come up with, but actually requires a lot of hard work uh, and a lot of discipline because it needs a really good diagnostic. It really it needs to be broad enough to encompass the area that you're looking after. And you need to have depth so that 
can it can have an impact on everybody who's working in the organization in a variety of ways. You need to be able to measure it, you need to be able to report against it, and you need to be able to track success. So when you look at all of that, actually that's quite a big piece of work that needs to be done. And once it's done, you've got to constantly refresh and renew it. So is this still relevant? Are we working on the right stuff? Are we delivering the KPIs? If not, why not? What do we need to change? So having the strategy and a process to review it and to drive the priorities of the business and to allocate your resources to is probably the most important thing that I always find when you, when you come into a new agenda as a leader, right? So having clarity of that is really important. And that's not a one-off exercise. That's a, a set piece of work that no doubt when you come into a piece of business, that needs to be constantly refined and renewed and then worked against. Then you need to make sure that the whole organization is aligned to it and working on it. And if anybody is working on something that is not aligned to your strategy, you've got to really question whether they're doing the right stuff. So how do you cascade that through your organization? And how do you align your organization through good follow-up discussions with various different levels of the organization to make sure everybody's aligned? So that's kind of, Ian, what I try to make sure, you know, on a monthly basis, that our strategy is really clear, people are really understanding it, and we're aligning it to as an organization. And then that's what helps me organize the team, helps me organize our resources, helps me organize how we measure and track performance and how we continue to refresh and renew that and just have the right conversations if we're off track on any of those KPIs. The second element to that that I do on a really regular basis is check in on the capability and the culture of the organization. So what are the capabilities that we need to be able to land this? What's the cultural shift that we're looking to make to ensure that these things happen? And that's my obsession. On a, on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis is less on the content of what we need to do because I trust the people that work for me that are coming up with the right content. Also have 20 years worth of business experience that kind of lets you smell out whether you're heading in the right direction or not. But, but also, actually, have I got the right capability? Have I got the right culture? Are there behaviors getting in the way of, of making this possible? If so, what is it? And how do we overcome them? That's a big obsession for me, um, and I check in on that. And then, and then thirdly, and maybe this is my own personal bias, making sure that we're clear on what success looks like. So, so you know when you've got there. And when you've got there, how do you go further beyond it, right? And that is what I obsess my time on from a monthly, weekly, daily perspective. You know, we, we are having... I'll give, an, I'll give you a real-life example. We're having significant inflationary pressure coming into our business at the moment, and we're having to look at ways of offsetting that inflation. And so I'm really clear right now what does success look like, and the team is really clear on what success needs to look like. So now that we know we've got there, right, we now know where else we need to go. How do we, how do we go further beyond that? How do we actually not only offset the inflation but create – additional benefits for our business where there's any more bad news coming in our direction, we can absorb it. So being clear on what success looks like helps you not only making sure you're doing a good job and you're heading in the right direction, but also then allows you to set the next ambition of where you want to be pursuing to. So constantly raising those stakes I was sharing with you earlier that's really important from a, from a values point of view. That was really useful. 
thank you. I think you you again caveated at the beginning that this sounds really obvious, and in some respects it is, but it doesn't hurt for for any of us to to just go through that thought process and and just rethink because we all get sucked into the day to day of of whatever it is that we're doing as as leaders as business owners and, and and running things is is that you you think that strategy is a document that you created three years ago and you you then sort of forget about it so you know again just for the benefit of those people are listening just to summarize is that prioritizing your strategy and ensuring that you you have absolute clarity on what that strategy is and the metrics that allow you to to diagnose whether or not you're on track or off track from from that strategy allocating of of resources and and that's not just people but that's investment it's time it, it whatever that resource is for that particular moment in time um are the team aligned and again i've seen it before where you know you've got one team that thinks that the vision is this and the other team thinks that the vision is this and actually they're they're almost at odds with each other in terms of what their priorities are because they're not truly aligned and and then if if there is alignment but we're still not maybe hitting the metrics and the kpis is is that you're studying the capabilities you're making sure that have I got the right people in the right seats doing the right job? And have I given them the best tools in order to go and deliver that, that piece of work or whatever it is that you're asking them to do? And then if they've hit it, if they've nailed it, they are clear that that's been a successful conclusion. But as a leader, and I'm, I'm sure you're very good at this, Rez, is, is just giving them that little bit of an extra push to go, okay, what? What more can you get? What else can you get out of this? But they will know, and going back to the behaviours thing, that if you're pushing them, you're pushing them for the right reasons and that they'll trust you that if they fail, that you've got their back. And that, that whole safety element is there, which is that fundamental behaviour that you talked about at the very beginning. So from your summary of the behaviours and the summaries of the priorities that are a leader that that the people that are listening to this podcast have, have got something really tangible and, and written down. I mean, I've got two pages of notes here, Rez, thank you. Is there anything else that, from your point of view, what, have, what, have we, what do you think we might have missed? Is there one, or is there one single piece of advice that, that people can take away tomorrow if, they, if they're going to be a leader of next week? It's something I started to think a lot, a lot more about maybe through experience, maybe the stage of life I'm in with family, et cetera, is creating a leader-independent team, okay? So actually, I picture a lot, um, what's the capability that I need to build? What's the culture that I need to build that is irrelevant whether I'm there or not? And the team can almost drive and run the business and be leader independent. Yeah, that's, the, that, that's almost the way I measure myself and whether I'm doing a good job or not, is could this team operate without me? If it can't, then I'm not doing a good enough job as a leader. If God forbid something was to happen to me and I was to disappear for the next 12 months, this team is more than capable of running the business, running the agenda and driving the outcomes that we collectively sign on to. 
that for me is an acid test of having done a really good job as a leader, is making yourself effectively redundant. And I frame that as creating a leader-independent team. And that's something I started to really work on, think about on how I assess myself and my performance in terms of, you know, the kind of legacy that's being created and the kind of leadership that's being created below me, where actually leader independence is something the team really aspires to and wants to be. It's almost like, get out of the way, boss, we've got this. Yeah, yeah. we know what we're doing. Uh, what we needed to do is just get rid of some roadblocks that we frankly haven't got time or energy for. So that, that for me is the acid test, right? Is when your team starts to make you feel uncomfortable about the boundaries that they want to cross, the risks that they want to take, um, the choices that they want to make on the business. Uh, and, and that's when you know you've done a really good job. So yeah, so that would be my closing thoughts, you know, as, as you have leaders that are coming in that are either new to their journey or in the middle of the journey is as you plot what you want your next 12, 24 months, 36 months to look like, you know, what could it feel for you? What, what, what would need to happen for you to have a leader independent team? What's the kind of culture, capability, talent, performance, behavioral shifts that you need to see coming through to give you confidence on that? Fantastic. Completely resonates. Some people have, you know, different acronyms for that, that independent leadership thing. I call it the bus test, which is, you know, is can your business pass the bus test? And people go, what's that? Well, you know, if you were hit, if you're in charge and you're hit by a bus, will it survive tomorrow and the next day and beyond that? And I always try and help people get to that position of passing the bus test. And I think you've described it very eloquently in terms of that independent leadership. So I'm absolutely 100% confident that anybody who's got to the end of this hour and has taken away an absolute ton of learnings from from this conversation because I know I have I've, I've been scribbling furiously res so thank you unless there's anything else any other sort of nuggets that you're you're holding back and maybe we we do this again in six months time and you're perhaps sat on a beach in Portugal because you're an independent you know team leader I think it's been a fascinating converse, conversation. Thank you so much, Rez, for, for sharing and, and being so hugely open and, and talking about your background. And I think the other thing I've taken away from this personally is just how much your family has influenced your, your growth as a leader. And I'm going to take something away from this, which is to talk probably more to my wife about her holding me accountable for the way in which I deliver my values and and the way I do things so thank you personally for for that learning for me it just leaves me to say thank you very much Rez best of luck for the future it was a pleasure working with you god I can't believe it was 14 years ago you know I always knew you were going to be a shooting star and you still are mate so keep going love it thank you so much and I really appreciate you taking the time I haven't allowed you to talk about Klopp because I'm still sore about the Forest game. So maybe we can talk about Klopp and sports and leadership on another occasion because I know based on your links to cricket and Glamorgan and so on that you've got tons more to add in that space as well and I'd, I'd really love to hear it. So thank you for listening. I hope everybody's really enjoyed it. So have a good day. Thank you, Ian. You've been listening to the Ian Baker Leadership Podcast. 
Thank you for taking the time to listen and I do hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to review, share or tell your friends about this podcast, I would certainly very much appreciate that. If you want more information about my executive coaching and my leadership programs, then visit my website www.ianbakerconsultancy.com Click on the links to contact me or book your free 30-minute call. Thank you again and I hope to hear from you very, very soon.